Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. It is brought to you this time by ExpressVPN and Moo. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell, and I'm joined, as always, by the voice you heard earlier, my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Jason. How are you? I'm uh, I'm doing great. There's a lot. Uh, we say that every time. But it's like, you know, you turn around and there's another big space headline. Mm-hmm. It's just uh, there's a lot going on that's, in space. That's how, how it works. Mm, these days. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of stuff. Um, it is. We're also a month out from our Apollo 12 special, which I've been, I've started my reading and absorbing of Apollo 12. So looking forward to talking about that in a couple episodes. Yeah, they, they're, uh, the. I think everybody had a moment after Apollo 11, right? The pace was so great. And then after Apollo 11, they're like, all right, let's take a, take a few months before we do this again. Sure. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that. We got a lot going on in, in the show today. There were spacewalks, mm-hmm. there's future spacesuits, there's future moon landers. There's uh, an SLS segment that involves yes. government bureaucracy, cru- crushing government bureaucracy, my favorite. Uh-huh. But yeah. before we get to all of that, we should probably like, you know, check in with the pre-flight checklist. Let's do it. I want to start talking about Insight, which we spoke about last time. Just a, a quick recap. Insight has this tool called the Mole. It's supposed to hammer... The Mole! Hammer and it's dig- my favorite tool on Mars, the Mole. It's great. I love it. It doesn't stand for anything. It's not a backronym. It's just the it Mole. It just is a cute name for a thing that burrows in the Earth. Yeah, it's a, or on Mars, it's a, a Mole. Uh, spoilers for later, we have another non-acronym name to talk about oh, later that's on. Good. So it's That's the good. week so of the moles in a hole. The moles in a hole. What's happening to the mole when it's in a hole, Stephen? What 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 was it? It well, wasn't digging. It dug and then it stopped. Right. Nothing was happening. We spoke last time about how it was theorized that it hit a rock, and then they thought, well, it's not actually getting friction on the side of the hole that it needs to hammer down. And the plan was to pin it the mole against the side of the hole it was digging with Insight's robotic arm. They went through that procedure. And on October 17th, so just a few days ago, NASA announced that the mole was digging again, having yeah. moved uh, three quarters of an inch during uh, the, the, the week that it has been pinned. They're moving it very slowly. They want to make sure they don't break anything. Uh, this has leads coming off of the top and wiring and all sorts of sensitive components. So they're, they're easing into this. But so far, the pinning plan has been successful, which is great news. Yeah, this is the it. It was a clever idea. I'm sure they tried it on Earth, right? In the analog to these mm-hmm. tools, and we're like, oh, oh yeah. you know, if you push it, if you push it here, it kind of grips, and then, and it's so great though, because this was one of those things that there's only so much you can do from all the way back on Earth. But uh, they seem to have freed the mole, mm-hmm. yay! And it gets to do some more digging. It's awesome. This is a this is a this is great news. This is one of the best space stories I feel like of the year. It's the a real victory. ingenuity to just sort of like push on this thing with this other thing, and then it works. It's great. Yeah. So hopefully they continue to see success with this. Uh, I think their plan is to ramp it up over time. It's hammered 220 times uh, between October 8th and the 15th, and uh, they will continue moving uh, down. The goal is to dig as much as 16 feet or about five meters. Uh, underground again looking at the the heat escaping from the planet's interior and uh new exciting science and hopefully this fix will let them continue so i I was very encouraged to read that story this week yeah it's it's a it's a big deal when you think about like it's only progressed this tiny amount a couple of centimeters and it's supposed to go five meters (laughs) like there's so much that it 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 really basically had just gotten started when it got stuck so there's a lot that they can learn when they get it down, uh, down down deeper. It's very, very cool. You want to catch us up on the first all-female spacewalk? Right. Well, we've been following this all year. And last time we mentioned that there was a whole bunch of spacewalk stuff that was going to happen. There's a battery. You got Sometimes you got to change your batteries. And the International Space Station has new batteries. And um, so one of the plans was that there was going to be a spacewalk featuring two women for the first time. Again, the story there is that that was going to happen earlier this year. But there was a surprisingly large astronaut, Nick Haig, who it's not his fault, but he took a large spacesuit. And so they had a large and a medium configured. And the two women who were going to do the spacewalk were both mediums. And it's very labor intensive to swap out the spacesuit sizes. So they just had... Uh, one woman do it with one man using the large spacesuit and the medium spacesuit. 
anyway, they're all everybody on the ISS right now takes the medium, so it's all good. And um, they were planning all of these different spacewalks, and then something funny happened, which is they did a previous spacewalk where they replaced some of the batteries with nice new modern batteries for the space station because the space station is powered by solar panels. And as you may even know from your own house, solar panels only work during the day. So up in space, it's like when they can see the sun and you need power all the time. So you charge a battery and then you deplete the battery and then you charge a battery. Well, after the first battery replacement spacewalk, what they found is that um, one of the eight power lines, power channels in the space station was being was faulty. So basically there was a, after they replaced the battery, they found that there was a charging, discharging instrument that was not working right. They needed to replace that part. So Christina Koch and Jessica Meyer uh, did, instead of the spacewalk, I think that they were planning on doing, they ended up doing a service spacewalk where they needed to replace this part to get the power working again. Um, and they had to take this out to the P6 solar array, which is 50 yards away from the airlock. It is not close Mm-mm. to the door to back where there's air. It's way down there. Um, so they had to go out there and then they had to, as you might know, you know, they had to take a heavy thing. And even though everything is is weightless in space, it's not massless. You got to be really careful when you're moving massive objects around, pushing them around and then stopping them, all of those things. All told, to take it out there, to do the replacement, to come back, seven hours and 17 minutes. Um, I saw Spacewalks described by one story as beautiful and boring, which is pretty much exactly right, Mm -hmm. because everything is very slow, but it is kind of amazing. And a lot of people were really excited and talking about how, you know, you turn it on and you're hearing women's voices doing work in outer space, which is pretty great. So all successful, as far as I can tell. They, you know, they put in a day's work of, of just outside for seven hours and 17 minutes, and they got to get into and out of the spacesuits and stuff. So it was a busy day, probably grueling and exhausting. They did get to take a break in the middle of it for about five minutes because Grandpa called. Oh, yeah. Oh, did uh, he? The President of the United States called and said he wanted to talk to the astronauts, and they put him through. I'm, you know, I'm sure it was all planned. And it was one of those congratulatory, it was, it was uh, Trump and Pence and Bridenstine all in the Oval Office, uh, speaker phoning it up to the women doing the spacewalk. Nice little uh, moment of, uh, this is historic, first time two women have been uh, on a spacewalk. Um, unfortunately, Grandpa thought it was the first woman to take a spacewalk and congratulated them on mm-hmm. how it was the first woman in space. And there was a very kind, like you do with your grandpa, you're like, well, you know, there have been other women before, but this is the first time that there have been two of us, so thank you, right? It was one of those thanks and also you're wrong, but now we are all on the same play- page. And uh, so anyway, that was the, the the phone call from the Oval Office in the middle of it. But yeah, it is history. It is something that we're going to see more of. Um, the latest NASA astronaut class, I think, was half women, half men. Um, the more women there are in space, the more likely this thing is to happen. It wasn't. I saw somebody refer to it as a publicity stunt, which is not accurate. Like, it really isn't. Yeah. It's it a really bad isn't. Take. This, this is that is a really bad take. It's not a stunt. It is a natural part of what's going on. I think originally there was one of those moments of like, oh, has this happened before? Like legitimately, like no, there are there are women uh, on this expedition mission, and they're trained in doing spacewalks. And why would you not? That would be one of the combinations of the very many, as I pointed out last time, many spacewalks that need to be done over the next few months. Of course, this combination would come up. And uh, apparently, uh, Cook and Meyer are uh, are uh, buddies. They're 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 really close. So that was also, I think, an extra fun thing to do this cool thing with your friend. Yeah, I thought Meyer, she, she's the one who responded to Trump. I just want to read this. I think she handled it really well. We don't want to take too much credit because there have been many other female spacewalkers before. This is just the first time there's been two women outside at the same time. And uh, Lauren Gresh points out that there have been 15 women who have ever spacewalked, including these two. So I thought she handled it well. Uh, you know, that's it's not surprising that Grandpa uh, got got that confused. But um, it happens. It's hard. It's hard. Sure. Uh, <laughs> he doesn't know about he doesn't know about space stuff. You know, Pence and Bridenstine are, are both there going, no, 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 no. But it's like, well, it's his office. Rounding out the pre-flight checklist, uh, this story caught my eye. 
about NASA potentially looking at more or at least one more seat on a Soyuz launch. So right now, if you want to get the International Space Station and you're a person, you've got to go through uh, Russia. you got to fly on the Soyuz rocket and their capsule. And right now, NASA has uh, seats. Their last seat is in the fall of 2020, so about a year away. And the, the hope was, of course, that commercial crew would be up and running to be able to take that burden and uh, off of the, these purchase seats, and we could just do it ourselves from uh, Florida here on American soil. And, of course, commercial crew, not quite on time, uh, depending on what you read when. You know, we could be nearing uh, the first flights, but still not quite there. And NASA is seemingly playing it safe, and they are looking at at least one more uh, one more seat on a Soyuz uh, to make sure the astronauts can come and go from the space station after fall 2020, if commercial crew is not up and running, because of course you don't want to be uh, unable to reach the station, and you and you want to make sure that you can get people there home. So you got to iron all that out well in advance. Interestingly, this isn't as simple as NASA just writing a check. Congress actually has to pass legislation to extend a waiver that basically allows these purchases. <laughs> so it's like a, right. a a literal act of Congress to make this happen. Congress has done so every time NASA has asked. And uh, there was an interesting part in this article, too, uh, by Ken uh, Bowersox, who's the Acting Associate Administrator for Human Exploration and Operations at NASA. Mm-hmm. Put that on a business card, I guess. But uh, that he expects that American astronauts will continue to fly on Soyuz vehicles after commercial crew is launched, but they would basically be traded out for cosmonauts flying on commercial crew vehicles, which I hadn't really considered before, but I guess that's always a possibility. So even if this seat is purchased and even if it is the last one purchased, it may be that there is still some some cross-pollination between the two programs as needs change. Uh, you could see if you know Soyuz had an issue and they were grounded, they may want to use commercial crew services and vice versa. So I think it's a positive thing to keep those lines open. Uh, and we'll see if this seat materializes, of course, keeping an eye on the commercial crew schedule the whole time. Yeah, I like uh, it's an interesting wrinkle that, you know, when we talk about the end of getting a ride on Soyuz, we don't mean the end. We just mean the end of paying. Right. Writing a check for it. Mm-hmm. Um, related to this, and this isn't even in our notes, but I'll throw it in there, um, is we do actually now have a head of human spaceflight at NASA. Um, it's a guy named Douglas Lavero, who in the article that I read uh, was described as a veteran manager with broad experience in national security space operations. Um, so he is the new human spaceflight person at NASA. So uh, he'll, and then that means Bowersox, who was a former astronaut, goes back to being like deputy associate administrator. Mm-hmm. He was the he was the interim guy. Um, Lavero uh, has a master's in physics and a master's in poli sci. He has an MBA. He has three master's degrees. People three master's degrees, and he spent three decades working with the Department of Defense and the NRO. The National Ooh. Reconnaissance Office. Yeah. Uh, and, and you may missions. think, what, is, what does that have to do with space? And the answer is, they launch all the space, all the spy satellites into space. They actually are a space agency hidden secretly inside the Department of Defense. Um, and then he uh, he was in the Air Force. Uh, he was a colonel, and then he retired from that and became uh, a member of the Defense Intelligence Senior Executive Service. So he has been involved on the defense side and now is going to be on the uh, civilian side here, but NRO, that's space business. So he has been in the space business for a while. Yep. Anytime you see like a SpaceX launch and say, oh, we can't show you the payload deploying, sometimes that's NRO, right? Or uh, if there's a Delta Heavy launch or something and like they don't talk about what they're flying, it's NRO. It's always very secretive. They also have very intense um, mission artwork painted on the sides of the rockets for NRO, like you know, crazy looking animals and stuff. Did you, I don't know if we talked about it. Uh, did we talk about it on the show? The idea of the, um, that uh, photo that Trump tweeted out that was the spy satellite photo. I don't, I don't know, know if, we... if we did, but uh, I remember the story. So what he did was it was this picture. Oh uh, no, this is what I was going to say. 
if you're the president of the United States and you post something on Twitter, then um, it's declassified. That's how that works. So uh, anyway, it was interesting because it gave people some perception of like the uh, capabilities of spy satellites in the NRO because they, they were like, is that a spy satellite shot? And they tried to figure out these known because you can see them orbiting you you know that there are these satellites that nobody knows what they are they figure they're spy satellites right there's this whole uh whole uh community around this and they figured out like it's that satellite and it mm-hmm. was taken at this time at this angle and we got the shot of uh, iran or syria or i forget exactly where it was. no it was i think it was saudi arabia where they were attacked it was something like that it was a it was a, a Middle Eastern a location where there had been some action. I forget all the details, but it's not really important. Um, my point is that um, that was a little peek into this amazing technology that people don't know about uh, that is like, this is the kind of stuff where when, if they have extra hardware left over, and we I know we've talked about this, sometimes they have extra hardware left over and they hand it over to NASA and say, here, this is out of date. It will be better than any of the space telescopes you currently have. <laughs> and they just turn it the other way and they use it for, for outer space instead of pointing it down at the Earth. So some of the highest technology space stuff we don't know about because it's spy satellites. Secrets. It is. It's super secret. Don't, don't tell anyone. Okay. Nobody out there. You're all, unless it's, this is the president, in which case you just tweet it out and then it's not secret. Otherwise, please keep it under your hat. <laughs> this episode of Liftoff is brought to you in part by ExpressVPN, a reliable way to ensure that your network data is secure without slowing down your internet speed. If you ever use Wi-Fi at a hotel, at a shopping mall, at a cafe, you're sending data over an open network and the Wi-Fi signal itself has no encryption. Um, also, your IP address at home is going to be uh, shared with trackers who want to market to you. Um, there's, you know, there's some scary stuff out out there for open Wi-Fi, like uh, you know, a key reinstallation attack uh, where there's a man in the middle. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that you can just not worry about if you yourself encrypt your internet connection with a VPN. And the best way to do that, ExpressVPN, you just download the app onto your computer or smartphone, use the internet as you normally would, click one button, do this on my iPad, just tap on my iPad, boom, I am 100% secure, they don't know my IP address, all the data that transmits to that Starbucks Wi-Fi receiver, wherever it is, it's encrypted, they can't see it, they can't look at it, it's fast, it's reliable, ExpressVPN recommended as the number one VPN provider by TechRadar and CNET. They take privacy and security to the next level. They even invented a technology called Trusted Server, which ensures that VPN servers run from RAM and no data logs are written to a server's hard drive, even by accident. If you want the best in online security and privacy protection, go to expressvpn.com liftoff for three extra months free with a one-year package. Protect your internet today. Protect your data. Protect your privacy with a VPN that is super easy to use and that I've used many, many times on my iPad. Go to expressvpn.com slash liftoff to get started. Thank you to ExpressVPN for supporting Liftoff and all of Relay FM. Steven, mm-hmm. it's time. It is. It's time. The SLS segment, Space Launch System segment, explaining geopolitics, mechanical systems, engineering achievements, news, and trivia. S-L-S segment. Ooh, I like that one. There's some clapping this time. That's a new favorite. In my head, it was a marching band, but it was just me. <laughs> a marching band of one. Yeah. The saddest marching band. This is part two of a, a mini series that I call NASA Buy Stuff That Doesn't Know What It Will Do With Yet. <laughs> We've all been there. Sure. You know, you've, you're on Amazon, you've had a glass of wine, and you're like, that looks great. And then two days later, it shows up at your house, and you're like, why did I buy this again? Yeah. When Jim Bridenstine does that, you end up with 10 SLS rockets. Yeah, or... Bridenstine, no, no. <laughs> Don't do it. No, take away his login. That's right. Don't link the credit card. No. Turns out the SLS, not on Amazon Prime. You got to pay a little bit more for it, so. And it doesn't take two days to get there. Oh, no. hey. No, oh. it doesn't. <laughs> mm. So uh, two episodes ago, we spoke about NASA putting an order in for in between six and 12 additional Orion capsules. This is part two of that. If you're going to buy a bunch of Orion capsules, you need something to fly them on. NASA seems unwilling to fly them on anything but the SLS, even though they may be good. That's a topic for a different time. 
Mm-hmm. So this is uh, an additional 10 core stages of the SLS rocket uh, from Boeing, their, the main contractor. This contract does a couple of things. First, it provides initial funding and authorization for the third core stage. So we've spoken at length about the first SLS. That's the one that's coming right along. It's going to have its green run test here pretty soon. The second one they have started on, which will send uncrewed Orion uh, to the moon and back to Cislunar Space and back. Artemis three, so the third SLS rocket, because again, not reusable, that rocket, if everything goes to plan, would put crew on the surface of the moon in 2024 asterisk read the fine print later yeah so not actually 2024 yeah that's a <laughs> talk about that too uh so so it it lets it cuts boeing loose to start on that third rocket uh for 2024 like the orion capsules nasa is banking on the more we build of these the faster and hopefully cheaper and better it gets you gain efficiencies the more you do it right so there's one reason you buy in bulk, I guess, is so you can spin all this stuff up and keep the machinery running to build a bunch of them. Uh, the contract also, so it's got the third the third rocket. It's got an additional nine, so up, up to 10 core stages, and then up to eight exploration upper stages. So um, listeners may remember the SLS is designed to be modular to a degree. So they have a regular upper stage, but then they have the EUS upper stage, which gives it a lot more horsepower and would give NASA the ability to launch crew, what NASA says, crew and cargo at the same time. So right. something take something like the Lunar Gateway. It's going to be very minimal at the beginning, but if they want to add to that, uh, without the EUS, they say they would need to launch an SLS that's just cargo and then launch another one for a crew to go to the gateway. So this gives the SLS more capacity for heavier lifts. Uh, so up to eight of those. We've talked about it before. I don't know into what detail, but it is in development, but it, it's sort of been put on the back burner to get these initial rockets ready because they don't need the EUS for the first uh, three launches. They say they want to start supporting the exploration upper stage on the Artemis four mission, even though we don't know what Artemis four will We'll do. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. We'll know what they're going to do. They hope to have this ready. So uh, so that's kind of what this contract covers. What is noticeably absent when you read NASA's press release about this is the cost of the rocket or the the contract uh, system that they're, that they're using. And we spoke about this under the Orion segment a couple of weeks ago. So just as a really like high-level reminder – you have cost plus, which means NASA basically pays for the cost of the rocket, any engineering, any work, plus usually about a 10% bonus on top to Boeing, or who, in this case, Boeing, but it could be other vendors for other projects. And then you have fixed price contract, which means we're going to pay this much for this rocket. And Boeing, if you spend less money than that, it's profit. And if you spend more money than that, then you're in the hole. And it's not our problem because we agreed together on a price for this vehicle. With the Orion contracts, they are going to transition from the cost plus into the uh, fixed priced contracts at, at about capsule six or seven. So about halfway through the run, they will transition to this later agreement type, which you can see why that would make sense for everybody, right? At the beginning, you're still working out the issues, but by halfway through the run, Boeing or whoever whoever the vendor is, they should know about what these things are going to cost and then you can lock it in. There's no detail about that with the SLS and the Boeing contract. Uh, a spokesperson for NASA, Catherine Hamilton, spoke to Eric uh, over at Ars Technica and said that the terms of the contract were not finalized yet and that NASA anticipates some sort of hybrid of cost plus and uh, potentially transitioning to fixed price later on. But it, it's up in the air and... I don't – I understand why that could be – like building the SLS is an order of magnitude <laughs> more expensive and more complex than building Orion. But I still think that Boeing and NASA should be able to work towards a fixed-price contract. They've been working on this program for a decade. They've yet to build one, 
And by the time you get to like four, five, or six, you got to cut them off and say like, this is what this is going to cost because the SLS is just bleeding money and time all over the place. Yeah. That's not great. It's understandable at the beginning, but they should get it to a point where that the taxpayer is not on the hook for those issues. I like uh, Cost Plus mostly because it's a good place to buy a lamp. Mm. Wow. Oh, yeah. Wow. You're welcome. SLS segment. <laughs> yeah, so a lot more SLS rockets coming coming yeah. down the Whether the you pipe. like it or not. Mm-hmm. They just keep coming. Until they don't. Yeah. And then what? Who knows? Mm. There's uh there's another story. It's not really part of the SLS segment, but it's like sort of like Artemis SLS. It's all mixed together. Uh Last week, Jim Bridenstine met with a House Budget Committee, everyone's favorite group in Congress, I'm sure. Well, I mean, they have the, they have the money, so <laughs> it, it legitimately is everybody's favorite. Yeah. It's, it's your favorite if it goes well. Yeah. Uh, well, mm, mm, yeah. <laughs> so Bridenstine met with them. Remember, Bridenstine came from Congress. Uh, this is believed to be a strength of his dealing with these situations, right? Like going to Capitol Hill, they, he knows how it works. And we've spoken in the past how we, we are generally happy with his performance as a NASA administrator, even though we had concerns at the, at the beginning. Uh, so he goes there, puts his politics hat on, and of course the House is run by Democrats. Uh, Brian Stein is not from that party originally, and so maybe there's some some stress there. You know, it's, it's a turnover. The House Budget Committee wasn't run by Democrats before, and now it is. And it didn't go super well. So NASA has requested an additional $1.6 billion for fiscal year 2020 uh, to push towards this Artemis 2024 goal set forth by the Trump administration and Mike Pence and, and all those guys. The White House has suggested, well, we'll fund this by taking a surplus in the Pell Grant program and you know we'll apply it to NASA. We'll pull it from a few other places. A bunch of people, including me, are not happy with that solution. I think there's other places you can pull that money from. Uh, and uh, all this sort of came out of this meeting, sort of spilled over. So you have Matt Cartwright, uh, a representative, who is like, look, we can't approve this until we know the total cost, because NASA has yet to publish a total estimated cost for Artemis, just what they need for fiscal year 2020. And they've, they've had some guidelines about how this is going to be the base and it's going to go up over time. And about a month ago, NASA said, we're working on that number, but it's not done yet. It clearly wasn't done for this meeting. You think that they probably should have had it for this meeting, but they didn't. And uh, Cartwright, I think, has a point, right? Like, you are uh, – in the article, he, he uh, paints an analogy of, like, if you buy a car and you're going to finance it, right, you're going to have a car note, you know how much the car costs before you pay the first note. Right. You, you, you know what you're getting into when you sign on to start paying this thing off. And NASA hasn't told them what the car costs yet. And I think Carwright has a point that that is something that they need to do if lawmakers are going to make a responsible decision. Do you think that particular point is fair on, on their part? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, unfortunately, there's a lot going on here in terms of power dynamics and Democrats and Republicans and all of that. But I think there's a lot to criticize in this. And I think that you could say, you know, you don't we don't know what we're spending. We don't know entirely what we're investing in. We don't really know. Re there's no real reason other than to set a goal or to have it be, uh, you know, before the next presidential term is up to have it be 2024 and not 2025 or six or eight. Um, and so, yeah, I think if you are in oversight over huge amounts of money, I think it's uh, it's worth having having that conversation, um, and yeah, yeah. I mean, you got to be. I, I think you got to be skeptical um, and try to be responsible, but also, you know, there's a political dynamic going on here too. Uh, there's also concern about the the timeline shift. So originally, the plan was lunar surface by 2028, and then the under Artemis, it got moved up to 2024, which we've been talking about ever since. And uh, there's concern about that as well, that that is too aggressive, that it's too expensive, it's too risky. And that has been a theme to these conversations, but that also sort of spilled out 
uh, in this conversation. I think some people, including Eric at Ars Technica, his article is sort of framed as the House Budget Committee has likely killed the 2024 moon landing. I don't think that's necessarily true, but if they don't get the $1.6 billion or NASA says, well, you're going to get uh, – or Congress says you're going to get a uh, billion dollars, which is what's currently set aside for an accelerated Artemis program, that could in like sort of by default push the date back. But I, I don't know if it's as severe as you know they're calling it off, but it's definitely a possibility. It depends on what truth you're currently choosing to believe, because I don't <laughs> think anybody really believes that 2024 is going to happen anyway, right? Mm-hmm. But if you go by that premise and you look at this, you think, well, this might wrap it up, or it might not. Like, But if you're not connected to reality already, then um, I'm not sure. Why, why stop now? Yeah, that's, uh, that's challenging to think about, right? Because even if the budget is there, like say there's just like a magic wand and NASA gets the money that it wants for this that doesn't guarantee success either, right? You have all these other programs that have to line up. It all has to work. You can't have any accidents. Like, no. in, in, in fact, I think you could say that it's generally thought that if they get everything they want, they still won't make it by the end of 2024. I think you're right. It's almost as if, it's almost as if 2024, and this has been bothering me. We, I don't think you and I have spoken about it sort of in these terms, but 2024 feels like a like a flag in the ground to speed things up. I mean, that's, it's the, it's the end of the second Trump administration, uh, possibly, but it's like, does it, does anyone actually, this is what I'm trying to get to. Does anyone actually believe 2024 is possible? You know, maybe Mike Pence does, but does anyone who actually knows about this stuff, does anyone actually believe that it's doable? And I think there is value in setting a, setting a target. I think that this is this is my so I think there's two things going on. One is you're trying to convince the president to support it and we're like you you get to be on the phone call and say yeah. congratulations on being the first person you, on the moon. I mean, I yeah, I mean it... <laughs> that'll be the that'll be the phone call and be like, well, actually, uh, there were people here before us, but <laughs> now now there's two of us and and one is a woman, and so it's great. So he wants to make that phone call anyway. Um, that's I think I think that's part of it. But I think the other part of it is this belief that for years now, we've been setting goals for the moon or for Mars, and there's never, you and I early on in this podcast, like, would always talk about there was never details. There was never a detail. It was always eventually. And that there is something clarifying in saying, we're going to shoot for 2024. Even if everybody realizes it's not going to be 2024. But I think there's a very strong argument to be made, the the uh, cooperation of the current president aside, that pointing at that date has that clarifying effect that makes it more likely that it will happen in 2025 mm-hmm. or 2026 instead of 2035 right. or never. And so that's the, it is a consensual hallucination a little bit, but I can see as that area of focus and saying what do we need to do to launch soon and not eventually because eventually never comes so you know that's why i kind of i kind of like the idea of this even though i think we can all admit that it's not going to happen um the only place where it runs up i would say against reality is um what you don't want is to cut corners that that jeopardize safety just to hit an arbitrary deadline. But, uh, you know, you just got to keep an eye out culturally for, um, you know, if, if it slips to 2025 because we need to make a change because we need to keep the astronauts safe, then that's got to happen. I think you have said it much better than I had, much more clearly than I had even thought about it. So uh, I think we're on the same page. Oh, well, that's very nice. Uh, man. Yeah, it's good to have goals, right? Even if they're in, you know... At some point, it becomes corrosive to have an unrealistic goal. But I think given how it's been with NASA, having a goal to shoot for, especially if everybody knows it's it's aspirational, but it may be the thing that gets us all rowing in the same direction mm-hmm. um, so that we get there, if not then, then soon thereafter. I think that can be powerful uh, if, it's, if it's not used improperly. Yeah, Even inserting the moon as a destination before Mars does that, right? Like under the Obama administration, yeah. journey to Mars, 2030s, 
that's so far off, it's hard to identify with. It's hard to sort of understand, like, what will it be like when that's here? And people don't get excited about it. People don't pull in the same direction. Even by just saying, hey, we're going to go to the moon, forget the timetable. We're going to go to the moon. That is a thing that people can latch on to. And when they see that NASA is spending a bunch of money as a, as a taxpayer, maybe you're more understanding of like, oh, well, hey, we've done that. I, I have a context for that. It seems doable. Mars always seems impossible or like too hard. So yeah, the moon makes sense. Uh, so I think even that could fall into your sort of way of thinking about it. It's good. Thank you, Jason. Sure. We've got uh, a little bit more to talk about. First, I want to tell you about our second sponsor. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Moo an online print and design company specializing in customizable business cards, postcards, stickers, and more for your business. If you're new to Moo, you can order a free sample pack on their website, moo.com, so you can see what their products look like and hold them in your hand. They offer a full suite of products, including business cards, postcards, invitations, letterheads, stickers, flyers, basically anything you would need to promote yourself or your brand. And you can count on Moo's quality. They have all these special finishes and processes. You get gold foil. There's a new silver foil that looks really cool. Raised spot gloss, letterpress, and much more. And it's those little touches on you know a business card or piece of stationery that help make you stand out. If you're not a designer or you don't feel like uh, working on your own card, Moo has rolled out templates for business cards, which are inspired by their most creative customers. And their luxurious hardcover notebooks feature a Swiss binding, so every page lays flat. They're made with premium paper that is protected by a tough tactile cover. I have used Moo for my business cards for years and years. Mine are on pretty heavy cardstock, and every time I hand one to somebody, they remark on the quality. I have the corners rounded off so it feels really nice, and it makes a great first impression. Head on over to Moo.com and use the code PRINTMOO, all one word, to get 15% off orders of $50 or more. That's Moo.com and the code PRINTMOO for 15% off any orders of $50 or more. Our thanks to Moo for their support of Liftoff and all of Relay FM. Let's talk about Lucy. Okay. Lucy is a discovery program mission. This is a... Uh, a series of missions that are capped at about $450 million. And uh, we actually have covered this, but it was years ago because Lucy was part of a uh, a broader list of projects that NASA was considering uh, back as early as like 2015 and over time was chosen over other options, options that included uh, imaging the surface of Venus, studying Venus atmosphere and a bunch of other things. Uh, but Lucy sort of won out out of all of those. And um, it's in the news now because it has completed its critical design review. So all of the projected hardware and science the team wants to do has been approved. They can move forward with, uh, con- with building and putting together their hardware. And uh, the plan is to launch this by October 2021. So here uh, in about two years. And what Lucy is going to do is uh, going to study Trojan asteroids. And these are asteroids that orbit uh, in the same orbit around the sun as Jupiter, but they're at Lagrange points of Jupiter. So they're both ahead of and behind the planet on its orbit around the sun. So they're in a stable orbit around the sun. And they are uh, a bunch of them, both before and after the planet. And Lucy is going to uh, fly through the asteroid belt uh, it is going to actually um, uh, image and study an asteroid belt asteroid and then on to six Trojan asteroids. And this is uh, – so it's seven total targets, which will be uh, the most of a single mission uh, ever. It's a very complex mission. You can look at the website. Its flight path seems wild because there's all these places that it will need to go. Of course, it will use uh, – a gravity assist to get out there uh, as many missions do. Um, and it'll be a 12 year mission to, to study these seven different asteroids. So this is uh, it's moving forward. It should launch in a couple of years. And the Trojan asteroids are really interesting because uh, like other bodies that spacecraft have visited recently or that are planned, the, these asteroids are from the very 
uh, foundations of the solar system. The the components that that are that make up these asteroids are left over from the formation of the planets, and so we can learn more about the beginning days of our solar system. And that's where the name comes from. So Lucy is not an acronym. I looked <laughs> high and low to see what Lucy stood for, but Lucy is actually named after uh, the uh, human ancestor Lucy, kind of bridging the gap in our evolutionary history. So it's it's an homage to to that Lucy, which I think is a is a pretty cool nod. Yeah, this is the Lucy Australopithecus, which was herself named for Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. So it kind of like goes all the way back, but. It's it's origins yeah. <laughs> and for those who don't know, like the Trojan asteroids uh, are like uh, they are. It's an it's a gravitational effect. You get you get the um, the L four and L five positions around a body where there's a stable uh, gravitational spot in an orbit ahead or behind uh, a massive body, and so there is this enormous collection of rocks <laughs> that Jupiter keeps. Jupiter has a large rock collection, keeps some of them ahead of it and some of them behind it. But they are really interesting objects that are, you know, they are gravitationally bound to Jupiter and they're in Jupiter's orbit, but they move with Jupiter forward, uh, you know, and right in front of them and behind them. And they are an interesting collection of objects. They're not all the same. So scientists believe that some resemble Kuiper Belt objects, but of course they're way closer than the Kuiper Belt. Right, because Jupiter's huge gravity has swept up all sorts of objects, so there's probably Asteroid Belt-style objects in there, Mm -hmm. but there's also probably Kuiper Belt-style objects in there. And who knows what else? Because, you know, you open up the vacuum cleaner and who knows what's in there? (laughs) But just spare Lego, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it's also believed that some of them could have water on them or other uh, materials kind of all under a blanket of dust, so... A very interesting corner of the solar system that we just haven't visited. We haven't been up close to these objects. And if it does pan out that one of these six is like a Kuiper Belt object, uh, Lucy will be able to study it uh, not only closer to Earth, so data comes back faster, but can be there longer than the flybys we're doing with something like uh, New Horizons. So um, it could be uh, a treasure trove of information uh, after it launches in a couple years. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I love, love, love those planetary missions. Love them. Yeah, uh, you know, it's always sad when something from Venus gets kicked out, but this is important work, too. Remember, we talked about Spacewalk earlier, and this has come up at least three times this year. We did. About issues with the spacesuits and the fact that the spacesuits that are at the ISS, there aren't that many of them. They were built a long time ago, and they were built, you know, based on designs essentially in the 70s. And, And when this came up about the failed attempt to do... A two-woman spacewalk. What NASA said was basically, "We're working on it, but we don't have anything for you." So what happened last week, right before that spacewalk, when we're in the midst of all these different spacewalks, uh, somebody at NASA was like, "You know, everybody's going to be talking about this and blaming us again. Maybe we should do a briefing." where we show people where we are with the work about the next generation spacesuit. And it dovetails with Artemis. It lets them put their hand up and say, we are doing something. So when you write about the all-woman spacewalk that's happening, you know, don't say that NASA is, has failed about spacesuits because we're working on this. So they did this event to show off the spacesuits that would be used on the moon and potentially also on Mars. Uh, they say they will be ready for that that aspirational 2024 deadline, of course. Uh, it's called the XEMU. It's built on top of the design of the ISS suit, so it's like a next-gen ISS suit. But they're much more flexible than the current suit, and they can fit a broad size of uh, a range of bodies, basically. Uh, um, the quote, the money quote is, we can fit anywhere from the first percentile female to the 99th percentile male. Um, and that's from a spacesuit designer at NASA. Her name is Amy Ross. I will also point out uh, the two primary designer design leads on this spaceship are, are on this uh, a spacesuit pro- program are women. So when we talk about like criticizing the uh, old NASA design processes for sort of being run by men and assuming men, um, today's NASA is a little bit different. And this is a great example of that. Um, the design is also really different. 
Um, there's a lot of worry about uh, lunar dust and actually Mars dust. Similarly, this super fine grain stuff that gets in and ruins everything. Um, there's no zippers, no cables on this. All the components are sealed. NASA says it will withstand the extreme temperatures on the lunar surface because, you know, if you're in the sun, it's very hot. Uh, if you're not in the sun, it's very, very cold, like minus 250 to plus 250. Um one of the interesting things about it that allows this to be this way, and I've read science fiction about this sort of thing, but it's interesting to see it in in action here, is this is a rear entry suit, and that's one of the ways that it can be more flexible and that it doesn't have to have all of the um, the fasteners and things, is you enter in from the back. So you basically, there's a hole on the back, which is, I think, where the backpack goes, and you put your put your legs in and then you put your upper body in and then it's sealed behind you. And mm -hmm. so it's all one piece. And that also means like that hard upper shell of the, the EMUs that are at the space station is it's, it doesn't have to be like that. It can be way more flexible. So the, the design wise um, people have been talking about this for a long time, but we we're still using spacesuits from, you know, from designed in the seventies and eighties. So, um, now those ideas are being put into practice with this. Um, and the plan, NASA says, is to send one of these to the ISS within the next two years, and they'll put it on and do a spacewalk, and it, it'll be like they can do a vacuum test, not on the moon, but they can do it at the ISS, um, that they don't actually have to do that. They can do what they did with Apollo, essentially, and like just take it to the moon, but um, that they would like to be able to do a test run on the ISS. And as we talked about earlier, in terms of how you get space uh, or get astronauts to the ISS, you know, yeah, I, I think nobody really knows what all the methods of getting stuff to the ISS will be in the next few years. If we've got commercial crew going, plus Soyuz, mm -hmm. then there's, you know, it's going to be a different kind of schedule. But, um, but they're they're hoping to do that. So anyway, you know, it is a work in progress and there's more to be done and this is not a finished product. But I think it was a really effective choice and a good presentation by NASA to say, yeah, we know. And they got caught flat footed last time when the story became really about NASA's failure to be able to have women doing a spacewalk because their spacesuits weren't the right size. And that was bad, but they learned their lesson and they got ahead of it this time to show that they are, you know, they're showing their work that was previously going on kind of behind the scenes. Yeah, I think it's a brilliant move from that angle. And they're, you know, they're weird looking. They're like, uh, the, at least in the sample design, they are red, white, and blue instead of just white. So there's like a white part and then there's like a blue shoulder pad and there's some red striping and the backpack is red, white, and blue. And it looks kind of garish to me. I think they should, it's not the best color choice, but, uh, you know, whatever. It's, I mean, I get the red, white, and blue thing. It's just like where the colors are placed and what they look like. I, I, I you know, the backpack looks like, uh, like a kid's uh, lunchbox. So it's, it's a big, it's weird, but uh, it's good. Good to see them doing this. And uh, definitely they not only, you know, when they demoed this, they also had women in the, in the suits. So the, the message received, I think by NASA. I want to talk a little bit about uh, blue origin and Jeff Bezos plan for blue moon, not the beer, just confusing, but the, uh, lunar lander concept that they have shown off. NASA has uh, public or has open submissions for lunar lander designs uh, that they actually do uh, in the next week on November 1st. And I think it's pretty clear from this that Blue Origin wants a part of that. So they have announced that they'll be working with uh, partners to develop the technology for Blue Moon. This includes Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and Draper. And... Um, all three companies have <laughs> lots of, uh, obviously, lots of experience. Draper actually developed the guidance computer for the Apollo landers in the 60s and 70s. And, of course, uh, Northrop Grumman is a, a long-time space hardware contractor, and they have the Cygnus uh, capsule or Cygnus uh, vehicle they use now to shuttle things back and forth to the space station. Uh, so Blue Origin says that they still plan to build the actual lander itself. They are developing their BE-7 uh, engine for powered descent. Uh, they're going to tackle all of that, but they're going to let these other companies take care of the, you know, sort of uh, related issues. So Lockheed Martin plans to build the the ascent portion of the lander. Then you got to come down, then you got to come back up. Lockheed Martin is going to focus on that. Uh, Draper 
true to their history, will be working on flight software for the system, including guidance and navigation and control. And then Northrop Grumman, pulling from the Cygnus program, will create uh, what they're calling an uh, in-space ferry to bring the lander to and from Gateway. Gateway's uh, orbit around the moon is too high for this design to, to be able to descend from that elevation. So they need to have something to bring the lander uh, to and from. That means uh, an additional rendezvous, of course, from, from the surface to the ferry and then from the ferry to the uh, to the gateway. So a lot of moving parts here, but I think it's super smart of Blue Origin to be doing this because they, they can't right. do it on their own. You know, they're, they're a very young company. But have all these companies pulling together uh, also means that they're out of the running for doing it on their own. And yeah, they're they're, <laughs> they're like the master contractor here, and they're like, we got a team. This is a lot in a short period of time. I got an expert for this part. I got an expert for this part. We already built this other part. We got a systems integrator here who is great with the software. We're going to put it all together. Here's our here's our bid. Which is not to say that they're going to get it because there's co- going to be competition. But I think it's really interesting that these these uh, major companies are are deciding to partner on this one uh Mm -hmm. it's a cool idea i like it and i I really i when you think about it like the apollo landers had all these pieces but having it be put together this way where it's like blue origin is going to do the platform which is the thing that's going to get you down but what is it is it uh yeah lockheed martin's going to have the thing that has the astronauts in it and they're going to be able to ascend from that and that they want to be reusable but have the base the Blue Origin base won't be reusable, at least at the start. It's like, right, oh, I, you can kind of start to see the pieces now, that they have to work together, but they're also separate pieces. Yeah, I think this is super smart on their part. And, you know, we'll know soon enough who gets to move forward with their designs, but I would bet money Blue Origin will be on that list. Yeah, it's it, it's a very, it's a lot of big names, right? Like, this looks like, this looks like the one to beat. I think so. It's, they've kind of uh, put together a who's who of... <laughs> A spacecraft design and development to build this thing. Boeing apparently is going to bid for this, but of course they yeah. are. Yeah, yeah. This is a pretty all star all star crew here. Mm-hmm. Also, it does if if you like to keep all your contractors happy, given all the stuff that Boeing is getting paid for, and then you bring in Blue Origin, Lockheed, and Northrop Grumman. It's like, oh yeah, like everybody gets you spread it around. Everybody gets a little something. Yep, I think it makes a lot of sense. Oh, I think that will do it for this episode of Liftoff. So much. So much going on. I know. A lot of if talk. You want, if you want to read more about uh, the stories we mentioned, they're all uh, collected for you in our show notes. You can find those on the web at relay.fm slash liftoff slash 110. While you're there, you can get in touch with via email. There's a link to our Tumblr blog where we post things in between episodes. And, of course, you can find this on Twitter. Jason is there as Jay Snell, and you can follow me on Twitter as ISMH. Until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, Stephen. <laughs> Adios.